You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. If you enjoy the podcast, have a request for a topic you'd like covered, or have some feedback on how we can make the podcast better, please contact us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com or via Microsoft Security on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, Nick. How's it going? Hi, Natalia. <laughs> uh, it's good. But bit of a first world problem here at Chateau Fillingham. I left a packet of dark chocolate covered mangoes uh, open at my desk all throughout the weekend. And so now I'm I'm inundated with the with the smell, with the the perfume of dark chocolate covered mangoes, which is it's it's a double edged sword. It's fantastic. And it's also it's also terrible. It is better than the smell of uh, acoustic foam, which you and I have both invested in in order to make our microphones sound a little bit better. I will take dark chocolate covered mangoes over acoustic. Yeah, foam. it sounds like I have something to learn from you. Maybe I should go get a bag of mangoes and open them on my desk. Just leave them there. <laughs> <laughs> That's Hot our podcasting tip. trick. <laughs> yeah, we're we're four episodes in, and that's this is this is the wisdom that we have we have devised. Forget candles. Uh, being professional podcasters, <laughs> I feel like with that hot tip, we should uh, dive into episode four. Hey, this is uh, episode four, which means we've had three episodes out there, which means people have been listening and downloading and rating and sending us tweets and emails with their feedback and. Thank you so much to everyone that's listened. Thank you so much to everyone that has rated, that has sent us a tweet or sent us an email. We're reading every single one of them. We're actively following up on all of them and adding them to our editorial calendar for for topics we can cover on a future episode. So thank you. Yes, definitely want to second that. And and with that, our first segment of episode four is a great one. So we have three different perspectives on the episode. We speak with an expert on statistics and machine learning, an expert on threat analytics, an expert on security research. As we dive into Microsoft 365 Defender and all of the great technology that underpins that product. We learn a lot about Microsoft 365 Defender and also how to uh, interview three guests at <laughs> once. That was, that was some interesting logistical challenges, but I think we got there. I think we got yeah, there. Yeah, I think we earned our badge for it. Yeah, we, we, we unlocked an achievement with that one. And, <laughs> and keeping with the theme of numbers and math, our expert that we're going to talk to is Dr. Anna Bertiger, who is a PhD and a postdoctorate in math. And I learned a new word, like genuinely learned a new word, combinatorics. Not even sure if I'm saying it right, but uh, Dr. Anna will explain what that word is. But yeah, combinatorics. Had you heard that word? I had never heard that word. I, I had not. The teaser is that it is a fancy word for counting things. And I'm quoting Dr. Anna there. So we're going to learn how Dr. Anna approaches finding villains with math. That was a pretty cool conversation. Yes, she's got an incredible passion for the intersection of those disciplines. And it's great to hear how she partners with security research in order to apply her knowledge of mathematics to our 
detections and to security as a whole. All right, enough jibber-jabber. Let's get on with the episode. Let's do it. Who says (laughs) jibber-jabber? So Mike, Cole, and Justin, welcome to the Security Unlocked podcast. This is our first episode where we're going to be interviewing uh, three guests at once. So thank you in advance for your time. I'd love to start if you could just give a a brief introduction of yourself, your role, uh, what that sort of means day to day at Microsoft. Mike, if we might start with you. Yeah, definitely. My name is Mike Flowers, and I am a security researcher within the Microsoft Protection Team. My role in my day-to-day business is to try and bring together like the different alerts that each of our subcomponents are are exposing, and bring them together into like a single incident that our customers can then uh, look at to be able to get the whole picture of what's going on as part of an attack. Great, and Cole. Hi, my name is Cole Soja. I'm a statistician. I work also in the Microsoft Threat Protection Team. Role-wise, I primarily serve for helping uh, implement machine learning uh, for security applications, but pretty much what I I spend my time on is, one, collaborating with people like Mike and Justin to understand kind of the threat landscape and identify attacks to model. Two, a lot of preparing and analyzing the data needed so we could actually model those attacks appropriately using machine learning. And then three, pretty much then just writing the code around the machine learning, implementing it itself, and then working with engineers to deploy it into our products such as MTP. Excellent. Welcome. And Justin. Hey, I'm Justin Carroll. I'm a threat analyst for the Threat Intelligence Global Engagement and Response Team. My role is essentially threat hunting, typically across endpoint data, looking for new or novel behaviors that are associated to known or suspected activity groups or new behavior that we may have interest in and providing intelligence on those behaviors that we're seeing or new techniques to different uh, protection product teams to help inform them for detection opportunities or understanding what threats are doing and how the threat landscape is changing. Excellent. Welcome to the podcast to the three of you. So the three of you are co-authors on a blog post from June the 10th that talks about how uh, attack modeling is used to find and stop lateral movement in the uh, MTP product, which has been uh, recently renamed to Microsoft 365 Defender. MTP uh, did stand for Microsoft Threat Protection. Mike, perhaps starting with you, I wonder if you could help kick us off with just an overview of what was discussed in this blog and sort of what's an introduction to that technique. Yeah, definitely. So when we take a look at the different incidents across our customers, one of the things that we notice is that when dealing with lateral movement, a lot of them had uh, key characteristics that we could use to be able to bring together those different parts into a single incident. And so leveraging a lot of the real-world cases provided by Justin and also leveraging uh, some ML models from Cole, we were able to bring all those signals into a single place. So that way our customers can take a look at those attacks in a single view. So identifying lateral movement feels like it's obviously a, a very complex challenge, but also a pretty critical one up front. You know, what is, obviously it's a, it's a basic question here, but let's sort of cover it. What is the, the most challenging or what are some of the most challenging elements in identifying lateral movement as part of a breach? So... I can at least speak to some of what we're seeing is a lot of the fact that 
the techniques used by the attackers aren't really all that different from what administrators do. Most good attackers are trying to look like administrators when they're doing these attacks or administrators that aren't great at their job per se. So differentiating the legitimate behaviors that you're seeing that are associated with these protocols, uh, such as like SMB or WMI versus the malicious ones can be kind of challenging because there is so much noise that you have to kind of suss out quite a bit to infer like what is the main differentiator from this and sets it apart as far as malicious. And it's particularly challenging when you have multiple different machines and sometimes the attacker's box isn't visible to you on telemetry, so you're only getting half the equation. So you're kind of trying to piece together this multi-part incident and figuring out all of it when you don't necessarily have the complete picture. One other key part about that that um, is worth mentioning is that a lot of times we'll end up seeing connections being made throughout a network whereby not only are they part of an attack, but they might not necessarily result in actual um, activity happening on the remote end. And so we'll see like scanning, for example, happening in a network. And in cases like that, the remote end won't actually have code execution on it, but it's still worthwhile to be able to see that type of telemetry. And so in that sense, what we're really trying to do is to bring together both components of being able to see that type of telemetry, but also be able to bring in uh, particularly the instances in which uh, code execution does happen on the remote end. So how are we using ML to help solve some of these challenges? Really the challenge is how do you identify or, or rather quantify legitimate behavior from the attack? and that's where ML will help. So there's two things we do. One is we do supervised learning, a form of supervised learning, where in essence, we create labeled data of attacks. For example, people like Justin will, will give us examples of actual attacks, so that will provide some labels. And then we'll take the data associated to these attacks and basically encode them into features. Think of feature, like the way we... The way we represent basically an attack is in the form of a graph. The features form nodes of this graph. And features are stuff like what are the network connections? What users are logging into the different machines? Are there any alerts on these machines? What are the different files that were dropped on the machine? What are the commands that are running on these machines? What's their parent-child relationship? So we take all of these features basically and we'll train a model to learn which combination of features actually correlate with the attack. In this case, we're looking at attacks that had an element of lateral movement. So we'll compute what's the probability of observing lateral movement given all these features and the examples we feed to the model. That's one way we use ML. The other way is through anomaly detection. So per what Justin was saying, where you have an administrator who's making, let's say, connections, we could uh, build a model to learn what's normal for like this particular account, let's say that's an administrator making connections. How frequently do they make network connections to other machines? What do they do? Do they, do they use scanning tools? How do they use the scanning tool? So we'll also employ anomaly detection, which is more unsupervised. We don't have labeled data there just to quantify what is normal. And that will also be used as an indicator to help basically filter out or remove the cases that are legitimate from what are actual attacks. So can you talk us through one of the attacks in the wild, the attacks that we're using to educate our ML algorithms? Yeah, so 
this attack is one that we've kind of been seeing quite often in the security space more and more is uh, human adversary hands on keyboard attacks where they gain entrance to a network. Often for this group, for instance, it's typically through remote desktop brute forcing. When they do this, so in this instance, what makes it a little bit difficult is they're typically brute forcing a local administrator account. So when they land on the machine, they are an admin which gives them capabilities of tampering with antivirus solutions. It makes credential dumping very easily. They're not really restricted, right? In essence, if you are an administrator on a machine, you own that device. And they don't have to, in this case, typically use many exploits or anything fancy. Once they have done the credential dump, as in the case that we saw, they can actually use those credentials typically with like, if it's a server machine that they're landing on, at some point, a domain administrator or somebody with some elevated privileges will have logged on to that machine. It's quite likely. And they can dump the credentials on that box and then use those credentials to continue their attack. Or other times, what they'll actually do is look for password files in text documents, which is also quite common. In the attack that we found, they dumped credentials and then did significant scanning in the environment to find vulnerable targets with the main goal of distributing ransomware widely across the network. They then used a combination of SysInternals tool, PSExec, and the Windows management instrumentation, so WMI, to execute remote commands and code on the other devices in the network. And from that point on, ransomed many of the machines. That was an example of an attack that you or your team found that had actually occurred. And then from that example, you were able to sort of perform a post-mortem and and work out sort of what the attacker did. And then that formed intelligence that fed back into the machine learning model to sort of learn how these kind of attacks would happen in the future. Is that that correct? That's correct. So basically we get examples like this. Um, You could think of it as a cold start problem where initially you know, we don't have any information or labels on this type of attack. Justin, um, for example, discovered this attack. We get one or two labels. We're able to build a graph with these labels as an attack graph, essentially, to start training the model. Then what the model will do to continue learning, it it will go use like these nodes now we built in the graph. For example, as Justin said, credential dumping would be a node in the graph how they did lateral movement over WMI and PSExec could be another node of the graph, scanning and so on. We'll build these graphs. Then the model basically will go search historical data, looking for these nodes and bring back additional examples that the model feels is similar to this example. If it basically looks the same with high confidence, that is the probability that it's this exact attack is higher relative to any other attack out there or any other example of a non-attack, it will actually create labels itself and it will expand the graph based on accumulating additional information in the graph. In those cases, if we didn't have those as nodes, the model will actually add those as nodes and it will keep that and then compute probabilities of those. And again, if there's higher likelihood that those nodes are associated to real attacks or attacks like this, it will retain them. And if not, it will then learn how to filter them or compute them as very low likelihood and they won't receive a lot of weight in the actual construction or prediction. 
So that's how we train the model through these examples. And what's new about this technique? What were we doing before this technique? Or what were security operations teams doing before? So before this technique was available, each of the alerts that was happening on the different devices were silent. So along those lines, if a ransomware attack happened within an organization that had, let's say, 10 devices, then each of those 10 devices would have separate alerts in them based off of what they were able to detect. And so what we're trying to do is to bring together all 10 of those incidents into a single one. So that way you you can go to that, that one place to take a look at it all together. So one centralized location. That makes sense. And what's next for the team then as you evolve the product? I said, do you want to talk to that part, Paul? Oh, sure. (laughs) From an ML side, um, there's two things. So one, we already started to work on and have some success, but it's ongoing. It's currently not implementing our product. It's more of a proof of concept or pilot right now is classifying threat actors. So like the pre-Nakata example. So when we see attacks, rather than just correlating what we observe as an attack, we could actually start computing the probability that this attack is this known threat actor. And given that, we could start asking questions like, what's the probability, given that we believe it's this threat actor, that we're actually going to see ransomware in the coming stage of the attack or some other type of objective from the attacker? So those are two active areas of research and stuff we plan on integrating into our product at some point in the future. It's the classification of threat actors that we're tracking and predicting the attack stages, what's going to come next in the attack, given the intel we have about the threat actor. That's one. The other one is basically expanding these types of correlations beyond lateral movement. We've had quite a bit of focus recently on human-operated ransomware, but there's other... Other things we plan on doing, um, integrating or extending this type of framework for better correlations of these alerts that still are um, hard to correlate and end up in silos. So it's something we want to extend this framework to just better correlate alerts that are probable as part of the attack, but we can't infer it like deterministically. I'm just wondering, are you seeing adversaries change their approach or or their techniques in response to the success, really, I guess, of these these new tools and techniques in the product? Yeah, you'll frequently see them changing techniques um, depending. So it kind of depends. Adversaries most often use what works and typically uh, in lots of instances where they're trying to deploy you know, for instance, ransomware on numerous targets quickly, right? Like they want to have high confidence that something's going to work. So in that instance, they only change techniques when they hit a roadblock, essentially when that no longer becomes valid or they're being stopped too quickly in their attack to fully execute it. We have seen quite a few different adversaries actually specifically switch to different techniques and have like registry files named things that basically indicate frustration with the way our products are stopping them. So like they get very frustrated at Defender, for instance. So they will try and use different tools and actually name them as you can tell that they are quite antagonized by how we are constantly monitoring them and trying to stay basically one Damn step Damn you, Defender.exe, something like that? <laughs> a little bit more explicit, but yeah. Uh, uh, a lot more explicit, but yeah. So um we do see them modify quite a bit. 
but it kind of depends. Um, I know with some of the more recent threat actor tracking that Cole and I and Mike have been kind of digging in and working on, we kind of see like a slow progression over time where you'll see some techniques kind of drop off for a bit and then eventually sometimes they resurface again. It just kind of depends on what is the most effective for them to get their job done. And it feels like utilizing machine learning as a, as a tool here in this process has you know, one of the additional benefits there to your point, Justin, is if an attacker decides to revert back to, obviously it's good at, at identifying um, variations on attacks, but if they want to revert back to something they haven't done in many, many years, you're not asking a human analyst to then dig back into their dusty cobweb memory bank. You, you know, the, the machine learning model is, is sort of has that, has that there sort of somewhat instantaneously. The advantage of ML as well, tied to uh, what you're saying as far as like understanding that old techniques are still part of the model so it knows how to handle them. Most attackers typically aren't altering all of their techniques, right? Like it's different sub-components of the attack so that either have been, you know, made more difficult by different product changes or things like that. The advantage of the ML is you're able to find those attacks where overall 70 to 80% of it is the same. And then you can use that surfaced information to know what they've changed to then put it back into the model to continue to modify with that. So unless the attacker completely changes from the ground up, which often they just don't do, you have a really good method of kind of keeping your finger on the pulse. So it's actually benefiting us in a way because we're able to just continually evolve the ML model because we already have that base data and can just adjust based on the subtle changes. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. I think Justin stated it nicely. Those are really the benefits. Um, Because if an attacker completely changes everything, of course, which would mean we don't have any previous features to even leverage on to start computing a probability, that's a different story. But since that's extremely rare, that's where ML is quite useful. It could continue, as I said, to grow and shrink this graph and dynamically learn these probabilities. And through surfacing like the probabilities, we could rank them accordingly. And that's where people like Justin could go look at it and say, oh, okay, yeah, we, we think with, let's say, 65% confidence right now, it's still the same actor. But here's some new things that the ML model discovered as part of this attack that then Justin could look at and then basically further interpret and help give that feedback back to the algorithm. So then it understands what this what these new features are, how they are related. Giving that context essentially to the model, I would say is key. And is there anything that a cu- the customer needs to do or the individual security analysts or practitioners need to do to take advantage of this technique or is it, is it sort of just baked into the product? Yeah, these things are baked into the product. So whenever a customer pulls up their list of incidents they had to look at, um, if there are any that span multiple machines, and if they contain alerts that have signs of a lateral movement activity in them, then they'll automatically be brought into that single incident for them to be able to take a look at. How did the model originate? What was the driver for this coming to light? A lot of how it came about was just a need on the analyst part of having a model to basically combine a wide set of disparate signals that at first glance 
may not appear related and required a significant amount of work to kind of correlate all the behaviors into a meaningful fashion to understand that they were they were tied to one specific incident or one actor. It kind of came about organically um, as data science is one of the perfect partners for security to kind of empower each other and then working together to continually build new models and then using those models to help inform the analysts of new behaviors and allowing them to quickly find interesting incidents that may drive the intelligence conversation or understanding where we have uh, product alerting opportunities. It's kind of like a, a very natural collaboration that is extremely effective. I'll just add one thing to that. So one thing data science brings, it's not just like the, the methodologies, if you will, in terms of how we design kind of the right tool for the job. There's an exploration phase. So one thing, like Justin was mentioning, is you, you have this huge space of signals to search through. And yeah, we have some previous examples. And there's also what we like to call the unknown unknowns, stuff we haven't seen, even the threat experts missed, for example, because they're kind of weak signals in themselves. So it's searching through this large dimensionality and then correlating them all and returning essentially what a model or what the scientist believes is to be indications of attacks that we might have missed or a part of an attack that we captured, but we didn't completely get the whole story of the attack. And that's where um, that collaboration becomes quite natural. So we will explore, then we'll go back and have a discussion we'll review and that will be feedback into how we further explore and we'll keep going, generating new examples from that and so on. Eventually that will lead to the definition of the model actually. There's almost always massive, massive numbers uh, behind the scenes here. And I know a lot of, a lot of our audience, you know, like to learn or, or like to hear about the immense scale that's happening behind the scene. You know, anyone got a, anyone got a big number you want to throw at us to, <laughs> to impress as to the scale and output of, of what this can do? We, we do generate tens of thousands of alerts every single day for our different customers. And what, what I find to be particularly awesome about the work that we've done with this project is bringing together or picking out those alerts within that giant set to be able to filter it down to the, the select 30, 40, 50 alerts that are part of a single incident that's happening within a given work. And making it so that way that's, or we're able to classify it so that way it's all part of one attack and bring it together for the end analyst. So I would say taking that number of hundreds of thousands even of different alerts across the, the entire time frame and kicking out the less than 100 that are relevant to this specific attack. Great. Well, thank you for that. And, and thank you. Cole, Mike, Justin, for joining us today. It was great to walk through all the great work you're doing. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Happy to be here. And now let's meet an expert from the Microsoft security team to learn more about the diverse backgrounds and experiences of the humans creating AI and tech at Microsoft. Dr. Anna Bertiger, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the Security Unlocked podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, if we could start with what is your title and what does that really mean in sort of day-to-day terms? What do you do at Microsoft? So my title is Senior Applied Scientist, but what I do is I find villains. You find villains. So how do you find villains? 
So I, I find villains in computer network. It's all the benefits of a job as a superhero with none of the risks. And I do that using a combination of security expertise and mathematics and statistics. So you find villains with math. Yes, exactly. Got it. And so let's talk about math. What is your path to Microsoft? Because I know it heavily involves math. How did you get here? And maybe what other sort of interesting entries might be on your LinkedIn profile? So I got here by math, I guess. (laughs) Um, So I come from academic mathematics. I have a PhD in math, and then I had a postdoctoral fellowship in the Department of Combinatorics and Optimization at the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Could you explain what that is? Because I I heard syllables that I understood, but not words. (laughs) So that is a department unique to the University of Waterloo. So optimization is, you know, maximizing, minimizing type problems. Got it. And combinatorics is a fancy word for counting things. Combinatorics. Yeah. Which you can do in fancy and complicated ways. And so, so that's what I did when I was an academic mathematician is I counted things in fancy and complicated ways that told me interesting things frequently about geometry. And then I decided that I wanted to see the impact of what I did in mathematics in the real world in a time frame that I could see and not on the sort of like, you think up beautiful thoughts, it's really lovely, it's a lot of fun, and then hopefully someone uses them eventually. And so I looked for jobs outside of academia. And then one day, a friend at Microsoft uh, sent me a note, said, if you like your job, that's great. But if you don't, my team wants to hire somebody with a PhD in combinatorics. And I said, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I, uh, you know, it took a while. I flew out for an interview. They asked me lots of questions. I, when I'm interviewing for a job, I evaluate how cool the job is by how cool the questions they ask me are. They ask me interesting questions. That's a good sign. If they ask me boring questions, maybe I don't want to work there. Do you remember Um, any of those interesting questions? Anything stick out? Yeah. So they asked me, that team was involved in the anti-credit card fraud system at Microsoft. So someone is typing your credit card number into Microsoft's website. Are you going to call up and say that was fraud? If the answer is yes, we don't want to, we don't want to complete that sale. If the answer is no, then we would like your money. And so they asked me a bunch of questions about how you get the right data for, for credit card fraud. So like, how, how do you know, how do you get a bunch of labeled data for credit card fraud that says this is fraud, this isn't fraud? Was there something that drew you to the cybersecurity industry when your friend showed you this job? Did you see security and go, yeah, that's cool? So I didn't actually see security in that job. Like that team was, didn't only work on fraud. We worked on a, we also worked on a bunch of marketing related problems. But I really loved the fraud related problems. I really loved the adversarial problems. I I like having an adversary. I view it as this like comforting, friendly thing that like you you solve the problem. Don't worry, they'll make you a new one. <laughs> it's true. So hang on, and, so you uh, you go to bed at night and sleep soundly, knowing that there are more villains <laughs> out there. I mean, I would kind of like to get rid of all the villains, but also like they're building me some really cool problems. Like yeah, you, you're a, a problem way- solver and they're throwing some good challenges at you. Right. On the like make the world a better place school of thought, I would like them all to disappear off the face of the planet. On the like entertaining me portion, their <laughs> problems are pretty good. 
And so I worked a bunch on, on credit card fraud related problems on that team. And at some point, a PM joined that team who had a, who was a cybersecurity person who had migrated to fraud. And I said, well, you know, I'm not a cybersecurity person. He said, oh no, you are. It's a personality type and it's you. <laughs> and, then, and then I worked at some other things, you know, worked on some other teams at Microsoft, did some Windows quality related things. And it, it just wasn't as much fun. And I found my way back to cybersecurity. And I've been here since. And how do you apply your academic background to that role today? What do you see transfer the most? So I think a lot about mathematics and statistics on graphs. So maybe it's networks of computers and I'm looking for surprising connections. That's something I think about a bunch. And surprising connections might be that people are weird or it might be that someone who doesn't know your network and doesn't behave like the people who are usually in your network are is there making connections between computers and that is lateral movement. So that suggests there's some advanced human actor in your network. So how do you use math to determine if it's just, oh no, this person is doing something funky, but benign versus bad actor lateral movement? So that is sort of the secret sauce of cybersecurity expertise. So I, so the math tells you this is weird. This is not typical. But the math doesn't tell you whether it's good or bad. The math just tells you it's atypical. And so then you hope to look for atypical along an axis where atypical is likely to also be poor behavior, is likely to also be someone malicious. And that is about working with people who are cybersecurity experts, working with threat researchers, working with threat intel, and trying to find the right axis to work along for, oh yeah, if it were weird in this way, that's probably bad. And, you know, you talk to them, you try something, rinse and repeat a lot. How do you use AI or ML as tools to solve some of these problems? So the AI and ML is about learning what's normal. And then when you say, hey, this isn't normal, that might be malicious. Someone should look at it. So our AI and ML is human in the loop driven. We don't act on the basis of the AI and ML the way that some other folks might. And there are certainly security teams that have AI and ML that makes decisions and then acts on them on its own. That is not the case. My team builds AI and ML that powers humans who work in security operation centers to look at the results. And so I use ML to learn what's normal. Then what's not normal, I say, hey, you might want to look at this because it's a little squiffy looking. And then a person acts on it. So what are some of those techniques? AI and ML, obviously very broad terms. They, they could have, you know, quite a, a wide scope. What are some of the techniques or, or approaches that, that you use mostly? Is, is, is that even an answerable question or is, do you use everything in the tool belt? I mean, I most prefer the technique that solves the problem. But that said, I do have favorites. And so I use a lot of statistical modeling to figure out what's normal. So fit a, a statistical distribution to some numerical data about the way the world is working and then calculate a p-value that you might remember from stat one, if that's something you've done, to say, oh yeah, well, there's, you know, only a tenth of a percent chance that like this many bytes transferred between these pair of machines under normal behavior. Someone should look at that. That's a lot of data moving. And there I like to use a group of methods called spectral methods. So they're about, if I have this graph, 
I have a bunch of vertices and I could have edges between them. I could make a matrix that has a one in cell IJ if there's, a ver- if there's an edge between vertex I and vertex J. Let me know if I'm getting too technically deep here. You are, but keep going. And, uh, and then now I have a giant matrix and so I can apply all the tools of linear algebra class to it. And one of the things I can do is look at its eigenvalues and eigenvectors. And one way you might sort of compress this data is to project along the eigenvectors corresponding to large and absolute value eigenvalues. And now, you know, we can say things like, all the points that are likely to be connected end up close together. And we can try and learn something about the structure of the network and what's strange. And we've done a bunch of research in that direction that is stuff I'm particularly proud of. So I know you mentioned this is very human in the loop. So you're bringing this to somebody and they now have the information that they can make a determination based on. What about plugging it back into the Microsoft solutions? Are we using this information to inform our products as well? Or are you focused really on empowering our security folks? Well, so here, the security folks are our customers. Like this is the product we are we are selling them is the alerting the SOC that something is wrong products. So sometimes it's security folks at Microsoft. I've written things that went to the hunters that that power Microsoft threat experts that they look at and say, eh, not so much, Anna. Or sometimes this is really gold. I mean, and and they have more tolerance than many for, well, it can be lousy sometimes as long as it's gold sometimes also. Um, And then also... I've written things that go to our customers via the products we sell. What are you most interested in solving next? What are you really passionate about? I'm really passionate about two things. One of which is sort of broadly speaking, finding finding villains, finding bad guys. So part of what I do is dictated by what they do, right? They they change their change their games. I have to change mine too. And then Also, I have a collection of tools that I think are really mathematically beautiful that I'm really passionate about. And those are spectral methods on graphs and sort of graphs in general. And so I'm really passionate about finding good applications for those. I'm passionate about understanding the structure of how computers, people, what have you, connect with each other and interact and how that tells us things about what is typical and what is atypical and potentially ill-behaved on computer networks and using that information to find horrible people. I think I've stopped being surprised by what our adversaries can do because they are smart people who work hard. Sometimes I'm disappointed in the sense of like, damn, I thought I solved that problem and they're back. But that's, I mean, and that's mostly just you feel like the like sad balloon three days after the party. At the end of the day, why do you do what you do? I think there are two reasons I do what I do. Uh, The first, which is I want to make the world a better place with the ways I spend my time. And I think that catching horrible people on computer networks makes the world a better place. And the other, which is that it's really just a ton of fun. 
I, I really do have a lot of fun. We, we think about really cool things, neat concepts in computing and beautiful mathematics. And I get to do that all day, every day with other smart people who wouldn't want to sign up for that. You've called mathematics beautiful a couple times. Can you elaborate? What do you find beautiful about math? What draws you to math? I find the ideas in math really beautiful. And I think that's a very common thing for people who have a bunch of exposure to advanced mathematics, but isn't a thing we filter to folks in school as well as I would like. That if you think about the Pythagorean theorem, so that's a theorem that most people learned in high school geometry that says the square of the lengths of the two sides of a right, two legs of a right triangle equals the sum together equals the square of the hypotenuse length. And if you... Correct. That is (laughs) a fact. Okay. And if you learn it as a piece of trivia, then you go, okay, that's a thing that I need to know for the test. And you write it down and you put it on a flashcard or whatever. But what I think is really beautiful is the idea of how do you think that up and the sort of human ingenuity and figuring out that that's true and the the beautiful ways you can show that that is true for sure. There are some really, really beautiful ways to be able to prove to yourself that that is true. And is that math or is that human ingenuity? Is that the human mind? Is that is that sort of creativity or is it all together? It's sort of both. I mean, the things that I love about math are the creativity and the new ideas. And so to me, those are very wrapped together and sort of math is is as much about, you know, there's something about some saying about truth and beauty and math is about those things. Changing topics sort of slightly. Are you all math all the time? You know, do you have a TV show you're binging on Netflix? Do you have computer games you like to play? Are you a rock climber? What's the other side of the math brain? So the other side of the math brain for me is things that force my brain to focus on something that is entirely not work. And so I really love horses and I have a horse and I I love spending time with her and I love riding her. She's both a wonderful pet and just a thrill to ride. What's her name? I call her Elsa, but on paper, her name is Calloway's Blushing Bride. Wow. I didn't give her either of those names. Do you think of horse riding in mathematical terms? Like, do you sort of think about velocity and angles and friction and all that kind of stuff? Or is it just organic? I really think about horseback riding in terms of sort of what it feels like. It's the opposite of sort of dry and technical. Awesome. Well, Anna, it was a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for sharing your love of math and horses. And hopefully we'll be able to bring you back to the show another time. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.